Mark chapter 4. We'll begin this morning with verse 21. But before we do, let me give you a little background, a little running start into our section of Scripture. With a growing opposition to Jesus' ministry, Mark, our author here, has noted in the first few verses of chapter 4 a strategic shift in the teaching ministry of Jesus. Mark tells us, Then Jesus taught them many things by parables. Please keep in mind four important points that we looked at last week concerning parables. First, a parable was a spiritual truth placed alongside an illustration. In many instances, Jesus would tell a parable. He would leave out the spiritual truth altogether, only to later explain what he meant through the parable when prompted by his disciples. The second thing you should keep in mind concerning parables is the main purpose behind a parable was not necessarily to teach or to communicate a lesson. The purpose behind a parable was to judge the heart of a person, the heart of the hearer. Whether or not a person wanted Jesus to explain the meaning of the parable revealed whether or not that person would have even been receptive to the truth if it had been given. The third thing you should keep in mind concerning parables is that Jesus would use parables to do two things. He would conceal spiritual lessons from those who weren't true seekers, while later reveal the lesson to those who desired to know the truth. So parables would conceal and reveal the truth. What a person received from a parable? A fun story, an entertaining lesson, or a spiritual truth, a spiritual reality completely depended upon the heart of the hearer. And thus, parables presented for us a greater picture of how we understand the Word of God. As Jesus illustrated last week with the parable of the sower, the condition of our heart, which he describes as the soil, towards the truth of God's Word, which he says is the seed, is the key to our ability to understand. Now, in the next chapter and a half, Mark will continue this train of thought by providing us three parables that further elaborated on our interactions with the Word before then providing three dramatic examples of the power of God's Word being demonstrated through the life of Christ. So three parables followed by three dramatic examples basically takes up the next chapter and a half of the Gospel of Mark. Let's dive in. Verse 21 of chapter 4. Also Jesus said to them, Is a lamp brought to be put under a basket or under a bed? Is it not to be set on a lampstand? For there is nothing hidden which will not be revealed, nor has anything been kept secret, but that it should come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Then he said to them, take heed what you hear. With the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. And to you who hear, more will be given. For whoever has, to him more will be given. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Now we're going to start in, by looking at these three parables, by establishing kind of the main lesson, the main point behind the parable, and then we're going to begin to substantiate that argument as we unpack the text. 
The main lesson of parable one, the section of scripture we just looked at, is this. The light of revelation is inescapable. The main lesson. Now, to understand this parable, you have to first understand the context. And I bring this up because a lot of people, when discussing this particular section of Scripture, I think kind of get it wrong because they don't keep it within the context of the flow, the narrative of what Jesus is discussing. A lot of commentators that I read this week or listened to this week will say that when Jesus is setting up this analogy about a light that's in a lamp being placed under a bed or under a basket, that Jesus is telling his disciples, that you're to be a lampstand, that you're to go out and to shine the word of God to the world. And though that is a fun, even relevant and applicable idea, I think it misses the point of what Jesus is saying because it's been taken out of the context of the narrative. Jesus has just finished communicating a harsh and a sobering reality that though the seed of God's word will be sown to all men, the parable of the sower, the seed of God's word is sown into all of the soil, all of the lives, to all men, because of the hardness of some towards Jesus, the truth of God's word would remain a mystery. And this is a tough lesson. So don't miss the underlying point that contributes to what Jesus is communicating. A person's position towards Jesus determines that person's ability to understand the truth. Therefore, the concealment of truth begins with a rejection of Jesus. This is what he's communicating. In John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. A person's position towards Jesus, the truth, determines if and how much truth will be revealed to that person. With that idea in mind, this parable and the lesson that followed, what we just read, it serves to communicate to us two important lessons concerning the word of God. First, since the word's effectiveness in our lives begins with our position towards Jesus. What is he saying? He's saying that you can reject Jesus, but you cannot ignore his revelation. In John chapter 9, verse 5, Jesus describes himself as the light of the world. In a world cloaked in darkness, the darkness of sin, Jesus' very purpose and coming was not to be concealed from man, but to be revealed to man. Jesus came to shine forth so that all might be without excuse. He says, he asks, he poses this question, is a lamp brought to be put under a basket or under a bed? Is it not to be set on a lampstand? A light's purpose is to be revealed. That's why he came, to shine forth so that all might see and so no man might be without excuse. Jesus continues by making his case that no man can ignore the reality of revelation by saying, for nothing is hidden which will not be revealed, nor has anything been kept secret, but that it should come to light. 
Jesus didn't come to be concealed. He didn't come to be put under a bed or under a basket. He came to be exalted so that everyone could see the light. I think every Christian parent at some point or another has used this verse to warn their kids that they should be careful what they do. Why? Because even the hidden things will be revealed. I don't know if you ever heard this, but I sure did. And while it's difficult to blame a parent for taking this particular approach, it's not exactly what Jesus was communicating. Jesus in this parable is illustrating the reality that no matter how hard some might try to ignore his revelation, it's as silly an exercise as trying to keep a light hidden in a dark room. You know, you can try to hide a lamp by placing it under a basket or a bed, but you know light? Light has this kind of natural way of being seen. It has an interesting way of getting out. Light and the darkness, it can't stay hidden. It can't be avoided, no matter how hard you might try. The light of Jesus, the revelation of the Son of God, not only shines so that it may be seen by all men, but it shines in such a way that no man can ignore it. That's what Jesus is saying. That's the point he's getting at. His first point, it's clear. Though the truth of God's word will be concealed because mankind rejects Jesus, a truth that we saw was illustrated in the seed and the soil. Understand, no man, no man or woman in this room can claim at some point in the future the rejection of Jesus out of ignorance. Why? Because Jesus has been revealed to all man, a truth illustrated by this parable. Now, the second thing that we gather from this section of Scripture since the word's effectiveness in our lives begins with our position concerning Christ, how we respond to Jesus determines how Jesus responds to us. I mentioned a few minutes ago that a person's heart towards Jesus determines if and how much truth would be revealed to a person. With this in mind, Jesus' statement in verses 24 and 25 become even more interesting because they, in, in, they indicate something fascinating. They indicate that God's activities and your life are reactive to your energy. God's energies or activities in your life are reactive to your energies. Read it again. He said to them, with the same measure you use, what? It will be measured to you. And to you who hear, what? More will be given. And whoever has, to him more will be given. And whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away. Jesus is telling us that God will respond to us as we respond to him and his word. It's kind of as though Jesus is saying, I will give you more revelation. I will reveal to you more of myself. Why? Because you have received what I've given and you've acted upon what I've already told you. But 
And this is where it gets tricky. If you don't act upon what I've revealed, if you don't act upon the truth that I've exposed you to, then what will happen? Well, I'll take away what's already been given. It really is a heavy, heavy idea. Now, to help you understand what Jesus is getting at here, there is what commentators state as the principle of spiritual momentum. The principle of spiritual momentum teaches that a person is either making spiritual progress forward or that person is digressing backwards. You're moving forward or you're going backwards. This principle states that we all reside, we all live, we all abide on a spiritual incline so that no one is or can be spiritually neutral. Basically, no one person is without spiritual activity or spiritual momentum moving them forward or pulling them back. The reality, if we're progressing forward, God enables the progression forward. But if we're digressing backwards, God will allow the progression backward. You're either moving forward or you're moving back. When it comes to your spiritual life, no person can be neutral. No person can be stalled out. Now this idea tells us, it communicates to us, that the person who is hardened to the things of God, what happens? They only grow more stubborn. The person who is softening to the things of God, what happens? This person grows more tender. To the person mired in moral compromise, what happens? This person only sinks deeper in their compromise. The person buried in their sin, only digs a deeper grave for themselves. The person receiving the word will see their desire for the word deepen. The deeper our love for Christ, what happens? The deeper we understand his great love for us. The deeper our dependence on the Holy Spirit, the deeper his help in our time of need. The greater our study of God's word, the greater God's revelation of his truth. The greater our obedience to his commands, the greater God's grace to obey. The more we share God's truth with those around us, the more of God's truth God will impart to us. The more we bless others, the more blessings God bestows. And on and on and on this list can go. God's activities are reactive to our energies. Now there are two common idioms that illustrate the whole idea of the principle of spiritual momentum perfectly. Because this principle is not just limited to the spiritual, spiritual realm. First, you ever heard the phrase, action breeds more action? I, I, like, I like the phrase, laziness only breeds laziness. Isn't it true? A person in motion stays in motion. I like this, use it or you'll lose it, right? This is the idea Jesus is communicating concerning his word, human beings. And what I mean by human beings, I mean you, people, are creatures of habit. Do you realize that you are a creature of habit? But habits, they're an interesting thing 
Because habits only form when we're dedicated enough to the activity to keep pushing forward, even when we don't feel like it, and even when it's not exactly convenient. You know, habits contribute to spiritual momentum. Now, this is why it's so important for us to develop a habit of daily study of God's Word. Because, you know, if you make a habit of getting into God's Word day in and day out, let me ask what happens. Does it become easier to be in God's Word or harder? It becomes easier. Isn't it always difficult when you take a break? You might have spent a few weeks just really digging into God's word. God was speaking to you. It was great. And then maybe things got hectic at work. Things got really busy. It threw you out of your routine. You broke your habit. And then things calmed back down. And and you're like, well, I really need to get back into God's word. Don't you realize it's very difficult to get started again? Even when you know it's a good thing. Even when you know it's healthy. Even when you know it's what you're supposed to be doing. Isn't it difficult? Why? It's the principle of spiritual momentum. If you're progressing backwards, it's hard to stop about face and get going forward again. It's tough. But you know, it's also true that this is why it's important for us to attend church consistently. This isn't something I really fully understand, mainly because I have to be here every Sunday. But for those of you who don't have to be here, many of you, I've discovered, as a pastor, that people that make church a priority for themselves, for their family, for their kids, that they make a habit of rain or shine, just like the post service, they're going to be there, unless it's a holiday, right? They're going to be there. No matter what happens, they're going to make sure that their family is at church on Sunday morning because they believe it's good for them, their spouse, their children. Those people who make that a a resolve, determined to make that a habit, who make it a habit, they're consistent. But you know those people who don't make it a habit? They're also very consistent because their attendance is all over the place. It all begins, guys, with a determination, a resolve. If it's important, am I willing to make it a habit? Am I willing to push forward? You know, Paul, the Apostle Paul, he said in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, he said, not that I have already attained or that I'm already perfect. But what does he say? He says, I press on. When Paul didn't feel like getting into God's word, he pressed on. When he didn't feel like getting up on a Sunday morning after a long week of work, he pressed on. He pressed on. Paul clearly understood the principle of spiritual momentum. Verse 26, Jesus said, and this gets us to our second parable, the kingdom of God is as if a man should, sat, should scatter seed, excuse me, on the ground and should sleep by night and rise by day and the seed should sprout and grow. He himself does not know how, for the earth yields crops by itself. First the blade, Then the head, after that the full grain in the head. But when the grain ripens, immediately he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Now the main lesson 
of our second parable is this. The way the word works is mysterious. In many ways, this second parable picks up where the parable of the sower earlier in the chapter left off. The seed, which Jesus has already established to represent the word of God, has been sown on receptive soil, which Jesus also has already established to represent a heart that's soft, a heart tender, a heart that's submissive to the working of the seed or the word of God. He continues the lesson forward by describing the mysterious process by which the seed, the word, interacts with the soil, our heart, and begins to yield a crop in the life of the person. Jesus says that the farmer, he says the farmer sows the seed. And then what does he do? He gets up each day to watch the slow growth of the plant as the earth yields the crop. This is what he's describing. The farmer will continue to watch this magical, mysterious process take place until it's time for harvest. Now, though we understand the science of germination and photosynthesis that contribute to the transformation of a seed growing into a plant, I think we learned this in like seventh grade science class, to the first century mind, the entire transformation process of a seed entering the soil and coming out this incredible plant, the entire process was cloaked in mystery. Understand that Jesus is using this truth. He's using this parable to illustrate to the disciples the mysterious influence of God's word and also to describe what our role should be in the process. Please observe. The farmer cannot make the seed grow. It's not as though the farmer goes out and sows seed, and each day he's just standing over the seed, trying to will that seed into a plant. He can't. No matter how hard he tries or what might he, he brings to the table, he has really no role in the process. As we mentioned last week, the power for growth and transformation it doesn't rest in the farmer. Really, it doesn't rest in the soil, though the soil contributes. The power for transformation and growth rests in the seed itself. To contribute to the transformation process, the only thing that a farmer can do is first sow the seed. You're not going to get any growth with the seed remaining in the bag. You got to get it out there. You got to sow the seed. And then secondly, you've got to provide the right conditions. For growth. The right conditions for growth when it comes to a literal seed is fertile soil, abundant sunlight, sufficient water, and adequate air and temperature. In much the same way, our involvement and the transformation of our lives, it follows a similar pattern. It begins with us sowing seed, or what? Sowing God's word where? onto the soil of our heart. That's where it begins. You can't expect spiritual growth without seed. And so you have to first sow God's word into your heart. Secondly, you then need to make sure that the conditions for growth are ample. And we talked about this last week. You need to make sure that the soil of your heart is not hardened, is not overcrowded, is not shallow, but what? Is tender, is receptive, 
is open to the working of the word. So first we sow, and then we ensure the conditions are ample for growth, and then what do we do? We wait. And we trust that God will work, that God will take that seed and grow a plant that will yield fruit in his perfect timing. And wow, I don't know if this is clicking for you, but the implications of what Jesus is saying here, of what he's communicating, the implications of this lesson for you and for me are awesome. Do you realize that the work of transforming a life of sin, transforming a person who's a slave of sin into a child of godliness, the process of transforming you from a slave of sin into a child of godliness, that that process is out of your hands? That's what he's saying. It's out of your hands. The work, the transformation, the power is a complete and total work of the word of God. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, that the truth the word of God effectively works in you who believe. The word works, you believe. Your role in the process is this. If you want to see your life transform from being a slave of sin to a child of godliness, if you want to see that transformation happen, where you're laying aside sin and weight that so easily ensnare you and you're running and you're, the Lord's filling your heart with joy and peace and, and love and he's anchoring you to the truth. If you want to see this process, this mysterious process work in your life and in your heart, this is what you do. First, put yourself into a situation where the seed of God's word is being sown. First, you can do that on your own. You can study God's word in a daily devotion. You don't need anyone to, to, to communicate truth to you. You can open God's word for yourself and allow the seed to be sown into the fabric of your heart. You can come to church. You can study. There's commentaries. But regardless, put yourself into a dynamic where seed is sown. The word of God is sown into your heart, into your life. And then secondly, make sure that the conditions for the word's growth are adequate. Make sure you're open to the work. Make sure you're receptive. Is this something you even really want? If you're wanting to see a transformation happening in your life, is the soil, is the fabric, is the condition, is the environment of your life conducive? Bad company corrupts good morals. Sometimes we fill our lives with junk that choke out the word's work. We need to make sure that the conditions are adequate. And then what do we do? If we're sowing seed, and we're making sure the conditions are adequate. Is then the life of godliness, the transform, is, is this thing now difficult? No. Our role at that point is to sit back and watch the transformation take place. It's pretty awesome. Please keep in mind how that transformation happens, how the word of God transforms the life of an individual from a slave of sin to a child of godliness. That, the how is really mysterious. 
I think many of us can remember back to a time where we were a slave of sin and we look at our lives now and yes, maybe we haven't arrived. Maybe we haven't been perfected, but we've seen godliness. We're seeing fruit and we look at ourselves and we're like, whoa, like I've been coming to church. I've been sitting here. I've been reading God's word. I know God's been working. Man, I don't... I don't really know how this exactly happened. I mean, before me, I tried to make myself better. I tried to fix myself. I tried to get rid of all these bad habits and all these bad tendencies. And then, and then I heard a Bible study and I sat back and I just studied God's word. And I don't know how it's happening. I don't know how this, tra- I don't know how. And though it's true that we don't know how, I mean, it's, it's mysterious. The process by which it happens is not that complicated or really all that confusing. The words working, this transformation, the process, we'll just call it the process of how the word takes you from being a slave of sin and to a child of godliness, it begins, very simple, very elementary. You see, the initial and most obvious manifestation of the working of God's word you might say the initial sprouts spring up is an intellectual transformation taking place within the mind of a person. This is where it all begins, I'm convinced. It begins right here in the mind. Once we've reached the point of submission, once we've come and surrendered ourselves to Christ, once we've accepted Jesus, the truth, what happens? Well, According to the parables we've been looking at, when we accept Jesus, the author of truth, he reveals truth. And when he's revealing truth, he's rocking our world. I don't know if you've experienced that. I have. Where you come and you surrender and you submit and you come to Christ. You get serious. You're becoming a student. And God's teaching and revelations being communicated. Truth is being revealed. And it's just blowing your mind. Have you, have you ever been in that moment? I have. So many of our preconceived ideas or our notions or our beliefs, they begin to fall by the wayside. We study. We reason. We wrestle. We learn. And God reveals. Our minds are literally being renewed by the washing of the word. That's what the Bible says, our minds. So, so the process, do we understand the how? No. Do we understand the process? Sure. It begins right here. The word of God washing our minds. But then also understand, while all that is happening, there is a more subtle, a more mysterious, an invisible spiritual transformation taking place within the heart of a person. Our first point is that there is an intellectual transformation taking place within the mind of a person, but secondly, there's a spiritual transformation taking place within the heart, within your heart. As we grow in our intelligence concerning God's word, something deeper is occurring Something deeper that might even defy our reasoning. I don't know if you realize I often pray this because I think it's so true. And it's my desire 
what I want to see happen here at 316 every Sunday morning is I, is I pray that as we get into God's word, that God's word gets into us. And as it does, what does it begin to do? It leaves a mark. Slowly but surely, we begin to see our lives transformed. How? Not through religion, which tries to transform a life through outside influences dictating an inside transformation. Rules and regulations, I must obey so that I become a better person. No, the transformation that Jesus talks about is not one coming from the outside working its way in. That never works, it never happens, but rather a transformation that occurs from the inside out through the study of God's word. As I study his word, I experience a healing. It's mysterious, it's invisible, but those scars that this world has, has wrought in my life, what happens? They begin to heal and he begins to mend them. As I study God's word, I experience a renewing, a virtue of purity. I experience a revitalization of character that changes the way that I speak. What I allow my eyes to see or my ears to hear. You know, it, though the work is mysterious, it's invisible, you know, you often can tell when someone comes out of the, wor the world into the word that what begins to happen, what's one of the early things, this invisible transformation? You know, their language changes. I see it all the time. Words that they used to use when they come out of their mouth, it's, it's just start to their spirit. They're like, whoa, I, I'm not, I'm not going to say that anymore. And what they listen to and what they watch, all these things begin to change. As I'm in God's word, I experience a rebirth so that I'm no longer satisfied with the things of this world, but I grow with an insatiable desire for the things that please God. Beyond all this, as I continue in my intellectual study of God's word, what also happens? My faith grows exponential, exponentially. You know, we're also told in scripture that faith, we want faith. How do we get faith? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? The word of God. Understand. The intellectual transformation, the process, the spiritual transformation, these things don't happen overnight. They don't happen immediately. You know, lasting growth never springs up overnight. The mysterious work of transformation, it requires patience. God must work in his perfect timing. Then he said, verse 30, to what shall we liken the kingdom of God? Or with what parable shall we picture it? Is it like a mustard seed? When it is sown on the ground, is smaller than all of the other seeds of the earth. But when it's sown, this mustard seed, it grows up and it becomes greater than all the herbs and it shoots out large branches so that the birds of the air may nest under its shade. Now, the main lesson of this third parable brings a warning. The word can yield unnatural growth. 
Jesus begins his lesson by posing a question. Let me paraphrase it. What picture can I use to compare the kingdom of God? He then continues by answering this hypothetical question by saying the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that grows into a mighty tree so that the birds of the air can nest and it's shade. Now, I want you to understand that the consensus, the majority opinion of this particular parable is that Jesus is actually describing something glorious, that he's describing something that's pretty awesome that the word of God that's being sown into the receptive soil of a heart, it sinks its roots down deep and man, like a mustard seed, it shoots up, uh, sprouts, and it grows into this mighty tree. And we think back to the Psalms, a tree planted by the rivers of living water. And, and we just get this whole mental picture of, of the word growing us into something so strong that it has such great reach that the birds of the air can take comfort and rest and nestle up under the shadow provided, the shade. The consensus, the majority of the commentators I read or looked at, take this particular approach when it comes to this parable. I think they're wrong. As a matter of fact, truthfully, I, I, think, I think they're way off base in their interpretation of the parable. Now, I, I don't say that in a haughty sense, that, that I've got some greater revelation than great men who just have a differing opinion. I'll let you determine that. <clears throat> but I think that there's a few things that are overlooked when commentators reach that conclusion that you really can't overlook. Now understand that the one part of the parable that most scholars agree on is that in referring to the kingdom of God, Jesus was making an allusion to the coming church that would represent his spiritual kingdom on earth. And I don't have a problem with that. I think all scholars can agree that that is an, an adequate and appropriate interpretation of what Jesus is referring to by saying the kingdom of God. But there are two other things that make the parable complicated and I think are overlooked when they shouldn't be. First, a mustard seed. Do you realize a mustard seed doesn't naturally grow in the way that Jesus described? A mustard seed doesn't grow into a big tree, that that's actually an impossibility. Now, with that in mind, it, it can only leave you with one of two conclusions. First, Jesus made a mistake, that he didn't really know what he was talking about, that maybe on the spur of the moment, he saw just kind of a mustard plant and said, what if this mustard plant grew into this great tree so that the birds could rest in its shade or whatever? Then he just made an error in describing a seed that really doesn't become a tree. I have a hard time creating a, a, an appropriate conclusion based off conceding Jesus made a mistake. I don't think that that's a good way of interpreting scripture. Well, Jesus was wrong there, which is why we can believe this. No, I think that's a bad idea. The second idea then, the second conclusion, is that Jesus, in describing a mustard seed becoming a tree, is intentionally speaking of an unnatural growth. I think it's the second. The other thing that makes this parable complicated is, okay, Jesus is speaking of an unnatural growth. Then what are the birds of the air that nest in this tree? What are these birds a reference to? And there are two possible answers. The majority opinion is that in referencing these birds, 
Jesus means really nothing but that they're birds. That there's no significant meaning behind mentioning the birds here. However, others believe, and I'm of this opinion, that in remaining consistent with Jesus' first parable of the sower in Mark chapter 4, verse 13, which, by the way, Jesus said, if you understand this parable, then what? You're going to understand all parables. So Jesus is clearly taking the parable of the soil or the sower, and he's using that as kind of like the key to other parables to, to the point that when he later on talks about soil, what do we know he's talking about? He's talking about our heart. Why? Because he's compared soil to our heart. When he's talking about the seed, we, we can make the comparison that seed is the word of God. Why? Because Jesus has already established this comparison, this type. Well, Jesus has also referenced in that parable the birds of the air, hasn't he? And he's also made it clear, he's provided the key that the birds of the air are a reference to what? Well, it's actually Satan and the works of evil. You know, the thing that I believe aids our understanding of this parable is the reality of 2,000 years of less than stellar church history. And mentioning this monstrous mustard plant, I believe Jesus is issuing a warning that he's not describing something glorious, but he's issuing a warning against an unnatural, unintended growth of the church. A kind of growth whereby Satan, who he describes as the birds of the air, can find ample places to hide within its branches. Sadly, if you take an honest look at church history, the history of the church, you're going to find a perfect picture of the very thing that Jesus is cautioning against in this parable. Please realize, and, and if this is breaking news to you, then I'm glad you're here this morning. But the church, God never intended the church to be a governmental entity, a political party with its own military. Like that, that was never part of God's commission of the church. He never commissioned the church to rule the earth, to tax people. He never told the church that you should take detractors and sentence them to death or burn them at the stake if they disagree with you. Jesus never told the church, go ye therefore into the world, making disciples of the nations. And oh yeah, by the way, if the Arabs take control of Jerusalem, embark on a few crusades. Jesus never commissioned that. He never told the church to engage in an inquisition, etc. It's a sad but true admission that the church, by and large, has failed to represent the wishes of Jesus or to represent a natural manifestation of the work of God's word. Though there were times when the church was effective, a look at history shows that the growth of the church, like a mustard seed, it took an unnatural shift during the reign of Constantine when what happened? The church merged itself with the state. And what happened? In the centuries that followed, the church grew into a twisted 
an unnatural system. It grew in a twisted and unnatural way that it became easy for what to happen? For Satan, the birds of the air, to come under the shade of its branches and corrupt it from the inside and accomplish evil purposes. Now the observation for the church is important. Please understand, church, that all growth is not good. All growth is not natural. Sometimes I think the church has made an error when we think Jesus is mainly interested in quantitative growth when I believe Jesus is more interested with qualitative growth. Sadly, church leaders today judge the success of their ministry using a numerical metric. How large their church has become, how many people attend, how many people their ministry reaches are all ways that we conclude whether a ministry is effective or not, good or bad, when instead we should use a qualitative metric. Instead of how many people are coming to your church, instead ask this question, how many lives are being transformed by the teaching of God's word? I recently read a book on church growth called Simple Church. The main premise of the book is that the most effective church ministries in America are the ones that have simplified their mission and then established a ministry approach that aims at accomplishing this intended mission. Christianity Today even touted this as a useful brush-clearing book that could help churches of any size move beyond mission statements to real mission. Now, don't get me wrong. Though I agree with the theory behind the book, and we will use many of its principles here at Calvary 316, I do believe this book, by and large, exemplifies the very error in how we evaluate what makes a ministry effective. Their prototype of an effective church ministry is a local Atlanta-based megachurch called North Point Community. And sure, Andy Stanley, his ministry has a huge audience that is across a multitude of satellite campuses, even Athens Church. And sure, they move thousands of people through their simple ministry program. But has anyone ever stopped to ask, to what end? Like, sure, they have a mission. And we consider them effective because of the tremendous reach of their mission. But have we ever stopped to consider the mission itself? North Point has an incredible ministry presentation. It, it, it really packages their mission in an effective, slick, commercialized way. But here's the deal. They don't teach God's word. From what I can see, because of their seeker-friendly, lukewarm message, they might reach a multitude, but lives are not being transformed by the gospel because no, no lines of moral demarcation are being communicated and the word is not being teach, taught. The idea of sin, the idea of eternal judgment, they're avoided, making their message nothing more than a weird form of religious self-help. We must ask, you must ask, 
Is a successful Christian mission simply to reach a multitude of people? Or is it to see a multitude of people transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ? The authors of Simple Church overlook this point. In this parable, Jesus is clearly saying how large something becomes isn't the basis for his evaluation. He pictures a plant that grew large. It had huge branches with a huge reach. But in the end, it was used by Satan for evil. I believe Jesus evaluates a church, will evaluate our church more on the quality of its mission than the quantity of the people being reached by its mission. I believe Jesus is more interested in the quality of the lives being reached, the transformation occurring in the lives of the people who come, than the number of people that mission happens to reach. Unlike the churches of today, Jesus evaluates based upon quality, not quantity. And don't get me wrong, and don't miss what I'm saying. I'm not saying first that North Point isn't doing some things that are good. I think they are, but I think they've missed a horrible and tragic point something Jesus communicates here. But my, my purpose in bringing this up is to explain that at Calvary 316, I'd love to see God use our church to reach a large number of people. I'd love to see it. We even mentioned it a few weeks ago as we were studying God's word that I think God has, has constituted us to reach a region, not just one communi community. But we will reach people through the teaching of God's word. Having a large reach or a big crowd, it's not a bad thing in and of itself, but I would never want to see our church water down the truth to simply try to draw a large audience. I don't think Jesus is pleased in that. In verse 33, he says, And with many such parables he spoke the word to them, as they were able to hear it, but without a parable he did not speak to them, and when they were alone, he explained all things to his disciples. And this morning, if you're a disciple, I hope God has communicated something to you. That as we teach the whole Bible, we know that Jesus will transform lives. That he'll grow us into whole Christians with the intention and the purpose of not sitting on our hands, but going into the world and making a difference. So Father, we thank you for what you said to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.